All right, I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. Before we read that uh, scripture, I'm going to read two quotes, and I want to give you, I want you to think, it's, everything's in English, and I want you to see if you can gather what's going on. England's openers labored 34 balls before scoring their first boundary as Strauss cracked two fours through the leg side. Cook made a patient start before motoring past his skipper. Anybody have an idea of what I just described? I think I heard something. Cricket. Yes, it is. Now, so uh, Matthew Kirby, the executive director of Northwest Classical, uh, used this quote in a Donuts with Dads event uh, probably a month and a half ago. And when he read through that, I had no, absolutely no idea what he was talking about. Now, let me read you a second quote as he did that same morning. In the top of the ninth, with Jeter on base, Smoltz forced A-Rod into 6-4-3 double play to end the game. What am I talking about? Baseball. Baseball. So because we're more familiar with the game of baseball, we recognize some of the names, um, and Logan for sure, who's, who played a lot of baseball in his life so far, understands the context of the game, then we immediately, just, just with a few words and a few descriptions, immediately have a vision and have an understanding of what's going on. Yet the first phrase, most of us, is for sure myself, I didn't have any idea. I, I couldn't picture, you know, what was going on in, the, in a game of cricket. Didn't even know it was describing the game of cricket until I was told. So we learned just through this simple illustration that context and knowledge is super important, especially as we look back into the Old Testament. And uh, that's one reason why I gave you um, that extra handout. Once again, we're not going to go through all those. It's, this will be somewhat of a history lesson and uh, his story, God's story, but we're not going to focus mainly on dates and people's names and things like that through that whole handout. But that gives you an overview of a lot of, of what has happened in the Old Testament. So look with me in Nehemiah chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. Okay, that's interesting. Certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped. Notice the next phrase. Who had survived the exile. And concerning Jerusalem. Another important term. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now much of what we learn throughout the, the Old Testament is a story of how individual people and groups of people, I'm going to kind of shift this way. Um, Jess, would you shift that camera over a little bit? The sun is competing. Um, but much of the story of, of God's working is individuals and groups of individuals and how they respond to the Lord, how they respond uh, to uh, his calling. And so we, we look at individuals like Nehemiah. We look at the nation of Israel. But I want to draw your attention this morning to the people and places that uh, set up 
the, the scenario or the background for this book. So first of all, uh, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Israel. And the kingdom of Israel, as you see on kind of your supplementary handout, uh, was once one unified kingdom under you know, King Saul, King David, uh, King Solomon, but then was divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, which was still referred to as Israel, so the 10 tribes, and then the southern kingdom referred to as Judah. Well, we want to look at the, the fall of Israel, both the northern kingdom and Judah, the southern kingdom. And uh, Josh, if you'd advance to the next slide. Okay, you're, uh, yeah, go back one. All right, so you may not be able to see specifically, but this is kind of a, a quick overview of the pattern of the history of Israel. True or false, Israel, the chosen nation of God, was always obedient and faithful to God throughout their existence. True or false? False. In fact, we see, unfortunately, this continual cycle of rebellion and then repentance and service, and then rebellion and repentance and service. And that's basically what this, um, I found this as I was studying this, um, uh, this kind of diagram or chart. So all the way back from Abraham, you know, leaving Ur of the Chaldees, God makes a covenant, you know, with Abraham. Abraham responds in faith, uh, goes to the promised land. Then you have from from Abraham to the 12 patriarchs, Israel sins. They're exiled into Egypt. Hebrews are there for 400 years. So all through the story, you know, of Joseph that we went through extensively, uh, goodness, probably a year and a half ago, and uh, then after Joseph and the time in Egypt. So in Egypt, the Hebrews repent. The Lord used Moses in a great way to lead the nation of Israel to, of repentance, and uh, in, in phenomenal signs and miracles uh, led them out of the nation of Israel uh, to the promised land, to Israel. The Hebrews, and this is this fast-forwarding, the Hebrews build uh, the temple, King David wanted to build the temple, but because of his, uh, his time in battle and God said, no, King, King David or David, I'm going to use you to prepare the materials, but I want your son then to build the temple. So King uh, Solomon built the temple. Uh, even King Solomon in many ways rebelled against uh, the Lord in his marrying of, of multiple you know, women, and uh, he paid the consequences for that. Uh, but after King Solomon, the, Israel was divided into the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. So basically kind of a civil, you know, civil war type thing, a northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Because of their continued rebellion, the northern kingdom fell first. So look with me in 1 Chronicles chapter 5 and verse 26. 1 Chronicles chapter 5 and verse 26. And what we're, what we're getting at is as we start in Nehemiah, we see this, this remnant that's back in Jerusalem. It talks about um, that they escaped. We, it says about the walls still being in shambles. So we're trying to get to, to this point. Why is Israel, why is this group uh, facing these difficulties? Well, it starts all the way back with the fall of the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. 1 Chronicles chapter 5. In verse 26. 
And notice as we talk through these things, and this, this is something that we'll emphasize throughout the study of Nehemiah, of God's sovereign work. Notice how it's phrased in 1 Chronicles 5, 26. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, the spirit of Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. Now let me just ask you for a minute. Were those two kings... Um, Jehovah God-fearing ministers, prophets of the Lord. No, they weren't. These were secular, um, against God kings, but yet God is going to use them as part of his purpose. So once again, the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, the spirit of Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and he took them... He's talking about the, the northern tribes in exile, namely the Reubenites, the Gadites, and a half-tribe of Manasseh, and brought them to Halah, Habor, Hera, and the river Gozan to this day. So the first tribes to, to fall of the northern Israel were the tribes along the eastern uh, part. Josh, why don't you go to the next slide too? Okay, so this shows you the first tribes to fall were along the, the eastern side of the Jordan River, and Assyria is the first country to conquer Israel or the northern kingdom, the, the ten tribes. So the first tribes to fall were these, these eastern uh, uh, tribes east of the Jordan River. Notice then in 2 Kings 17, 5 and 6. 2 Kings 17, 5 and 6. The Lord is still using Assyria to really fulfill what he had told the, the nation of Israel, that if you rebel against me, then you, you know, I will punish you um, and take you out of the land. And we see this being fulfilled, seeing this prophecy come to pass and God's word um, be true and faithful. 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 5 and 6. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land, and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. Okay, so Samaria, once the two kingdoms were divided, Samaria, up here in the northern part, was the capital of the northern tribes. Jerusalem was the capital of the southern kingdom, or of Judah. But Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. So we see here in verses 5 and 6, uh, that he, they came, invaded all the land, and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. Then in verse 6, In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in, in Halah and on the Habor in the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. So, the eastern tribes east of the Jordan River were taken, and then a while after that, Samaria was, was conquered, and then Assyria took many or much of the northern kingdom population and spread them out, okay, all these areas, spread them out into different cities. Some remained, uh, but many of the large majority of the northern kingdom was spread out all over what we now know of as the Mideast. And you may recognize, of course, you have Egypt, and we know of Israel, Saudi Arabia, you know, the Middle East, Mediterranean Sea, kind of for you to get your bearings, um, but God promised this. He said, listen, if you, if you don't listen, if you don't follow, if you don't uh, you know, revere me as God Jehovah, 
then you will be sent into exile. Um, and in, in, in a way was showing his love uh, to discipline them and bring them back uh, to him. Look with me in 2 Kings, also in verse seven, or chapter 17, verse 13. 2 Kings 17, same chapter, but verse 13. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah. Okay, so already he's, we're seeing reference to the two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, I'll find my place. Okay, verse 13. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants to the prophets. So God very clearly used prophets to warn Israel of the coming judgment. Uh, and the prophets were faithful to you know, plead for repentance, uh, to warn them, but the nation of the northern kingdom uh, refused to do that. So then Assyria took foreigners of other conquered lands and sent them to repopulate the northern kingdom. So that's what you see here by the orange. So Syria takes people from other places that they have conquered, sends them back into uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, the area of Samaria, to repopulate uh, that area. So then what happens? Through the years, several hundred years, in fact, uh, because we're talking about 722 you know, BC, so which means before Christ. So it's a, it's a long time before the coming of Christ. But So from that time then, many of those who remained in Israel, the Jews who remained in the northern kingdom, began to intermarry with these conquered Gentiles, the conquered foreigners who were sent to repopulate Samaria and that whole region. That gives us a better understanding of why in the New Testament, the Jews did not like the Samaritans from the area of Samaria. Because not only were, did they consider the Samaritans to be a mixed breed, but also religiously, think of the, the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. Religiously, they had different views and they had different beliefs. So this goes all the way back to the northern Israel being judged by God, sent uh, into exile, uh, foreigners repopulating that area, and then intermarriage um, happening and, uh, and causing future you know, strife between the Jews and the Samaritans. Now, turn with me, if you would, to Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25, and we'll kind of skip through verses 1 through 14. Jeremiah 25, verses 1 through 14. Jeremiah was used of the Lord to, to prophesy now to the southern kingdom, to Judah, uh, the two, two southern tribes. They you know, had not been as wicked, and God showed you know, mercy to them and gave them more time but yet uh, they continued in their also cycle of rebellion. So look with me in Jeremiah 25 and starting in verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, 
the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. Notice verse 4. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear. Although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants and prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Six, another very clear warning. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. So God uses Jeremiah to prophesy this to the southern kingdom, to Judah. Seven, yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands through your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, verse eight, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, How does God describe Nebuchadnezzar? My servant. servant. Nebuchadnezzar at this point was not God-fearing. Nebuchadnezzar was not saying God, Jehovah, is the God that we should serve. But God is showing his sovereignty in that. He can orchestrate the works of kings and rulers all over the world to his sovereign purposes. And so he calls Nebuchadnezzar my servant, the king of Babylon, my servant, verse 9, And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. Now notice verse 11. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So here we see Judah, Jerusalem is the capital. Uh, God uses Nebuchadnezzar and, and Babylon to conquer And then they're exiled into Babylon. Now, this didn't happen uh, just in like one big, you know, exile. Daniel, for example, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were some of the first to be taken into Babylon. Uh, But yet, we continue to see that they um, rebel against the Lord. Look with me in Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29 and verse 10. Jeremiah 29 and verses 10 through 11. 10 through 14, rather. So a few chapters ahead in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verses 10 through 14. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Now, I, I want you to take special note of verse 11. This is a awesome verse but it's, or passage, but it's also taken out of context a lot. Many times this passage is taken for someone to claim that God is going to give victory and God is, you know, just all about, you know, the the good things in life. But he's just said, you're going to have 70 years of exile. And then notice what comes next in verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into Exile. 
So we see, you know, Israel's pattern of rebellion, but we also see very clearly God's prophecy of reproof. God clearly once and once again uses his prophets and uses uh, even secular kings and, and, and wicked kings to show his people, listen, my word will come true. And you're, you, yes, you're going to be in 70 years of exile. There will come a time where you'll repent. And at that point, then I'll bring you back and I'll gather you once again. So we need to be careful, you know, that, uh, that we don't use this passage uh, out of context. And understand, this was in a context of God saying, you're being judged, but I haven't abandoned you. I have a purpose for you. And I want to gather you back again when you repent and when you come back to me and, and recognize and remember that I'm your God. There are three different periods of exile out of Judah, the southern kingdom. So about 120 years after the northern kingdom fell, then Daniel and others were taken captive by Babylon during the first exile out of Jerusalem. Then the third and final exile out of Jerusalem happened around 586 BC or 586 years before Christ. Uh, this was around 136 years after the northern kingdom had been conquered and its people dispersed. Now, we're not going to dive real deep into the weeds here, but some people talk about the northern kingdom as the lost tribes, the ten lost tribes of Israel. They're not lost. Um, there were some who remained in the northern kingdom, uh, but e even some who, and, and there's passages that back this up, even some of those Jews went into the southern kingdom after uh, many of their uh, you know, other citizens were exiled. Some of the northern kingdom citizens that remained went into the southern kingdom. The New Testament talks about um, uh, people from and uses tr the, the names of some of the tribes of the northern kingdom. So in a sense, I think some people use that term because the northern kingdom, unlike the southern kingdom, or let's, so Israel, unlike Judah, never had a clear authorization or a clear path back to their homeland, to the promised land, and for that reason, some call them the lost tribes of Israel. But they're not lost. Uh, God used some, some of those and, and kept a remnant uh, for his name even in the ten tribes of Israel. So if you want to look at that later, uh, there's some interesting articles and, and passages about those ten tribes. Now through this, as you see on the, on the screen, um, so Assyria, Babylon, and then anybody rec remember from, just from Scripture, what kingdom then conquered even Babylon? Yeah, the Medes and the Persians. So the Medo-Persian Empire. So we see that you know, the, the, the frailty of human kingdoms, so the fall of Israel and Judah, or the fall of the northern kingdom and southern kingdom, and then God using even Assyria and Babylon and the Medo-Persian Empire uh, as all part of his sovereign plan. Now through this, that kind of brings us up to why, why are the walls in shambles? Why did the temple have to be you know, rebuilt? Because the first temple was destroyed completely. You know, as, uh, as the, the, uh, one of the, some of the last kings of Judah refused to uh, give in to the Babylonian empire, then King Nebuchadnezzar uh, or Babylon came and completely destroyed uh, the temple or Solomon's temple, the first temple as sometimes it's called. So now it needs to be rebuilt 
a second temple. Some of the key people then leading up to this, um, Ezra chapters 1 through 6. We won't read all six chapters, okay? But Ezra 1 through 6 recounts the story of how God used Zerubbabel to, in the first authorization for Jews to go back to Judah and to lead the people to rebuild the temple. And they began to, to rebuild the temple and at one point just the foundation was done and the work was stopped. Now, when, if a foundation is done, can you use that building if it's just the foundation? You can't really use it. And then 17 years passed, and they, had, they were given authorization again to start once again, and in three years, they were able to complete uh, the, the construction of the second temple. Uh, Zerubbabel, his Babylonian name means offspring of Babylon. So Zerubbabel had spent you know, his life in exile in Babylon. But in Ezra 1 through 6, and later I'd encourage you to read it, this gives you a great backdrop for Nehemiah. Zerubbabel and the high priest at that time named Joshua. Don't confuse it with the Joshua, you know, of coming out of Egypt and Moses, but another Joshua is the the high priest together with Zerubbabel leads in the rebuilding of the temple. As the foundation was completed and the temple, the second temple was going up, were the, some of you may remember this and some of you may not. It's fine if you don't. Um, This isn't probably the go-to you know, scripture passage that you read, you know, when you're discouraged. But as the second temple was being rebuilt, did the Jews celebrate and just excited about, you know, how magnificent and how phenomenal this second temple would be? No. Some who remembered even the first temple were were devastated. They were very saddened because it was it was much smaller. In fact, look with me in Haggai chapter 2, this is towards the end of the Old Testament. Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. And we'll see some of the response as Zerubbabel is rebuilding this second temple. So Haggai chapter 2 and verse 6 says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So Haggai is talking about this second temple. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. So those who are there, who are seeing this temple be rebuilt, who are saddened by the size, you know, saddened by the the lack of of grandeur that this second temple would have, Haggai is saying the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, I believe we see really kind of two fulfillments of what Haggai is prophesying here. Once this temple is rebuilt, um, Nehemiah, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but Nehemiah and Malachi are the last two in, in the chronological order. Nehemiah and Malachi are the last two books of the Old Testament to be written. 
Nehemiah records, as we'll see, the rebuilding of the city walls. Now we're looking at the temple, but then the city walls are going to be built. Malachi even then comes after that and prophesies to the Jews, because many of them are already starting once again to fall back into that cycle of rebellion. 400 years will pass, and then John the Baptist and Jesus Christ are born. Jesus will actually go into the temple, this temple, the second temple, and his presence will even bring a, a, a greater glory, in a sense, to the second temple. That's partial fulfillment. But I believe this prophecy in Haggai also looks forward to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, so a thousand-year reign on earth, when there will be yet another temple that will be rebuilt. And in that sense, as we just read in Haggai, that, that God will shake all the nations, all the treasures of the nations will fill the house. And the latter glory of the house shall be greater than the former in a, in a phenomenal and very visible and tangible way. And as we see in verse 9 that we just read, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. There's some lessons to learn in this. As Zerubbabel was building this second temple and the Jews were saddened as they looked at it and just thought, boy, it's smaller and it's, it's, uh, it's just not what we expected. But yet Haggai says, listen, the, the latter glory of this will be greater than the former. Jesus Christ himself would enter into the second temple. And then even beyond that, it points to the, the, the final temple during the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. And in essence, it's saying, listen, don't be, don't be saddened. God is going to use this place in a phenomenal way. Now, an application of that is as God works in us, and sometimes in our lives, he does what we feel maybe are small things, but yet oftentimes we don't see the final sovereign plan that God has. And we live in a culture that celebrates and, and longs after and values big things, things that wow people, and don't don't imagine that that doesn't infiltrate the church. That is a huge temptation for the church of Jesus Christ in this day, in this, in this time frame, to, to think, well, if we can't do it big, if we can't have the, the best this and be the biggest church in town, if we can't have the best programs available, then what are we doing for God? God's sovereign plan is often so much more complex and, and obviously better than what we can plan. Big things aren't necessarily sinful. Praise God for big churches. Some of the things that they can do, we, we won't be able to do for a while, at least. But don't, don't forget, personally or even corporately as a church, don't confuse bigness and the, grand, the grandeur of things with success, necessarily. As God calls you to do things, just as he clearly called Zerubbabel and gave authorization and sent them out of exile back to rebuild the temple and gave them clear instruction, but then people's first response was, really? This? This is the temple that we're rebuilding? And Haggai, as a faithful prophet of the Lord, says, God has a plan. And the latter glory of this will be greater than the former. So we're encouraged to see God's 
you know, wisdom in all that. The Persian kings during this time were King Cyrus II and King Darius. So that was the first return. So after, uh, as, as Babylon, um, or the Persians rather, authorized return, this was the first return back to Judah, back to Jerusalem. The second return then was the Jewish leader, Ezra. Whereas Zerubbabel focused mainly on temple uh, construction, Ezra focused a lot on the spiritual restoration of the people. Okay, now that we have a temple built, but what does that mean? And so he, he helped to reinstate and, and revalue the law of the Lord and, and reading that and practicing uh, what they were supposed to do in this rebuilt temple. In fact, Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10 says this. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So he works on not necessarily the main building project of the temple, but the reestablishing of its function and its place in, in this Old Testament uh, spiritual you know, economy of God, of the sacrificial system and, and reinstating the law of the Lord. King Artaxerxes was the Persian king uh, you know, during this time of Israel. And then now we come to Nehemiah. Now is the third return. Many years have passed uh, since the temple, you know, the second temple was rebuilt. And that's in, in one way why Nehemiah was so saddened that the walls around the city of Jerusalem and around the temple were still in shambles. I don't think I quite would have understood this as much had I not lived in Brazil for a while because it's very common in Brazil for most homes and, and churches and schools to be surrounded by walls. So much so that when we came back, I think it was on our first furlough, we came back to a house in Macon and uh, Christina would have been about uh, four years old. She became very fearful because we lived in a house in Macon, Georgia that didn't have walls all the way around it. She's like, this is, this is just really weird, Dad. People can come up right to our front door. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of how I grew up, honey. But in, but in Brazil, it's common to have a wall all the way around your house and, and people don't come to your front door. They knock maybe on a front gate or they clap to get your attention. And you open your front door and go, okay, yeah, okay, or, you know, what, who is it? And often when a, when a piece of property is purchased, often the wall is the first thing that is built around the property. And then the house or the church or the school or the governmental building is built. So we see here in Israel something of this nature where the temple has been rebuilt, the city has, is starting to be repopulated, but the walls outside of the city that add protection and, and give this sense of community and that this is the place that God has restored, they're still in shambles. So not only is there a physical element of, you know, we're vulnerable in the areas around us to the, to the other people around us who are our enemies, but also this sense of incompletion that God has called us back, but yet it's not really complete because it's still uh, not completely done. And then Nehemiah hears. 
jump back then to Nehemiah chapter 1, and let's read once again those first couple verses of Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, now it happened in the month of Chislev, the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. Okay, a little, little review quiz. Judah is southern kingdom or northern kingdom? Southern. The capital city of Judah was Samaria or Jerusalem? Jerusalem. All right, and we'll see that here. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. So you can think back, and Nehemiah is talking to, to a brother here, and he says, hey, give me the scoop. You know, what, what's going on? What does it look like? He didn't have Fox News or CNN News or the Wall Street Journal uh, or the Atlanta Journal-Constitution to look and to see how it was. He was waiting for this, this personal report. And they said to me in verse 3, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So God then calls Nehemiah to lead the effort to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. Zerubbabel was mainly temple construction. Ezra was mainly the spiritual restoration. And now we see Nehemiah, the, the wall and community Restoration. Nehemiah, his name means Jehovah Comforts. Isn't that neat? Jehovah Comforts. Ezra and Nehemiah in the Hebrew text for, for many, many years until the 15th century, I believe, were considered to be one book. And so there's, there's not complete certainty. Is it, was it Ezra that wrote this book or... You know, was it Nehemiah? Certainly there's a lot of personal accounts, you know, in first name accounts. So did, did Nehemiah write a diary, you know, write a journal, and then Ezra used that as his source to, to write the book? Or did Nehemiah write it and Ezra kind of served as editor? Ezra was a scribe, you know, so he was, he was very capable and, uh, and an excellent writer, obviously, but certainly Ezra and Nehemiah play a very integral part throughout this whole book of Nehemiah, which once again used to be part of just one book and then even at times was called a second Ezra. So we see Nehemiah, Jehovah comforts. Nehemiah is a cupbearer, but then he's called to construction. Persian king, King Artaxerxes, is the one who's in rule at this time. You may remember from last Sunday, um, Esther is King Artaxerxes' stepmom. So even in that, we can see maybe, you know, maybe God used Esther, who, as you maybe recall the story of Esther, how she took a very bold and courageous stand for her people. Maybe God used Esther even to soften the heart of King Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes to authorize and fund and protect Nehemiah and others going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city or rebuild the walls. Last person that I think is important to mention is 
key people would be Malachi. So towards the latter part of Nehemiah's time in Jerusalem, once again, the, the Jews begin to become complacent, begin to forget why God brought them back. They begin to rebel. And God uses Malachi as the last Old Testament prophet to warn those who are in rebellion, but to also to encourage the remnant who's still faithful. And may this be just a, a huge warning to us. As we love God, as we fear God, may we never take it for granted that our children or the younger generation that God has put us in contact with will just automatically follow in our steps, nor take it for granted that the spiritual condition that you have today and the fervor and the, and the passion for which you serve Christ today will always be that way unless you continue to grow in Christ. Every one of us is very capable of committing any sin in the book. Don't ever get to a point. I, I remember specifically one, this man who I dearly love, and one time he said, he said, David, I don't think that I need to be in church as much, and I certainly don't need to go to Sunday school because I've learned it all. It wasn't long after that that his life completely fell apart because of many ungodly and wicked choices. He began to think, I don't need anything else. I don't need, I, I've already, I know it all. No, we haven't. We have so much to learn. After Malachi served as a faithful and courageous prophet, then for 400 years, sometimes we call it the period of silence. For 400 years, many of the religious elite began to not only read and, and study the Old Testament, they began to add their own personal traditions and what they felt was even more important. And that's the context that we see Jesus Christ and John the Baptist confronting the Pharisees. A group that, yes, they had a certain allegiance to the law and to Moses and to the teachings of the Old Testament, but oftentimes elevated their personal traditions and what they taught so much higher. John the Baptist then served as a transitional prophet Spanning the time from this 400 years of silence into the New Testament or the new covenant with Jesus Christ. And John the Baptist declared to all, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So in a quick summary, we've seen how from Abraham throughout the Old Testament, through the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, even using secular kings, how God is, is sovereignly working his plan but also showing his great mercy and his great love as, he, as the people of Judah repent, then brings them back and rebuilds the second temple. Uses Nehemiah then to build the walls that we'll, we'll see here in, in the coming weeks of how that happened, but rebuilds the walls around Jerusalem and in a spiritual way is showing, I want my people to dwell with me and I will dwell with them. Isn't that what we're going to celebrate in Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday? How Christ, God, Emmanuel, God with us, desires the same for us today. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we finish this morning?